there, Java junkies. It's Andrea. Before we start today's show, I have an exciting announcement to share with you. On April 17th, Time for Coffee is going to hold its first in-person live event. That's right. We're inviting you to join us in the audience for free. And we've got all kinds of cool swag to give away to the first 25 Java junkies who show up. So make sure to get there early. We're calling it Time for Coffee's Caffeinated Career Mini Summit. And it'll take place at the University of Maryland at 7 p.m. on April 17th. And for those of you in the area, we hope you'll join us at Maryland's College Park campus. Just go to timeforcoffee.org to get more information. Now, let's get on with the show. Hi there, I'm Andrea Koppel, and it's Time for Coffee, the podcast where you get to hear firsthand what the jobs and careers that interest you the most are really like. Hey there, Java junkies. Welcome to another episode of T4C. Hope the semester is winding down well for you. By the way, I know the dreaded finals week is just around the corner. And because I want to make sure you are all able to knock everything out of the park, please remember that the best thing that you can do to ace those exams or the projects that you have to complete is to take care of yourself. You need to eat well, stay active, hydrate, and most importantly, Make sure you're getting enough sleep. I know that may sound crazy, but if you haven't heard it already, please, please take a listen to episode 55 with Dr. Bill Stixrud and Ned Johnson to learn just how important sleep is to your brains and, frankly, the other pitfalls that college students especially should try to avoid if you want to end the semester strong. And if you want more help, episode 58 with Emily Fletcher is all about Ziva meditation. That's her amazing online meditation course and how it can help you to level up your performance in everything you do. Now, if you're interested in journalism, in radio, or especially podcasts, my next guest is going to absolutely knock your socks off. But before I introduce you to Lauren Ober, I want to make sure that you signed up for the Java Junkies Journal. That's our weekly newsletter that comes out on Monday, and it gives you an overview of the five episodes we're going to be dropping each day that week. It is super easy to sign up. Just head over to the Time for Coffee website at time, the number four, coffee.org. You can even pause this episode, frankly, so you can sign up right now. I got to tell you, this is an extra special episode for me, and that is because it is the first time on Time for Coffee that I have brought on a co-host to sit next to me during a T4C caffeinated career conversation, just as I'm sure many of you may have an internship this semester. I frankly have four amazing college students working with me to help bring T4C to you every week. And I want to say on the record, I would not be able to drop five episodes a week if it weren't for their hard work, their diligence, and their energy. This is truly a team effort. And I am so grateful to Riley Graham, Abby Tausig, 
from the George Washington University, who, by the way, are in the house right now. And it's great to have them here during today's show. And Jeremy Navarro, who is not in the house right now because he's up in Vermont at Middlebury College, my alma mater. Jeremy, we wish you could be here with us. And intern number four this semester is Lindsay Jeffrey, who has shown me since she started back in early September that she is a total go-getter with a fantastic attitude, great energy and passion and folks, a lot of hard work. Every assignment I've given her, just as with the other interns, she has knocked out of the park. And because she is an aspiring journalist, I want to give her an opportunity to sit in on the interview alongside me. Hey, Lindsay, why don't you tell Java Junkies a little bit about yourself and take things from here? Hello, time for coffee community. My name is Lindsay Jeffrey, and I'm a junior at the University of Maryland studying broadcast journalism at UMD's Philip Merrill College of Journalism. And I am super interested in podcasting and audio production. After college, I'm thinking I want to be a reporter at a radio station or start my own podcast. But now it is time to grab your mug and take a chug of a delicious caffeinated beverage because it's time for another caffeinated career conversation. And our guest today is Lauren Ober, who is not only an award-winning radio journalist and highly sought-after podcast consultant, she's truly a podcast expert. In her 16 years in journalism and through hosting the popular NPR radio show, The Big Listen, a broadcast about podcasts, Lauren has examined the podcasting world from the inside out. She's interviewed countless podcasters about what goes into their work and been featured on top podcasts like 99% Invisible and NPR's Weekend Edition. And she's consulted for some really diverse clients on their own podcasts, including PBS, The Smithsonian, and the CIA. But Lauren's work isn't the only thing that makes her a rock star. She also has a super fun personality that shines through everything she does. Lauren, welcome to Time for Coffee. Are you caffeinated and ready to go? I mean, kind of. Like, I have a beverage in me. (laughs) I don't know how much caffeine is in there, but I'm ready to go. That is awesome. And we know you are naturally caffeinated on life. I'm naturally something. Uh, that, is, that is true. Lauren, it is so wonderful to have you here in the flesh. Lindsay and I were both such huge fans of your NPR show, The Big Listen. And even though it's not on the air anymore, which is a huge shame, I know you've got something else that you're working on that you'll be able to tell us about in a moment, which we're super excited about. We were hoping that you could take us inside what it was like working on a national radio show like The Big Listen. And maybe you could start by sharing sharing with Java Junkies what The Big Listen was all about and what you did as its host. Sure. So I had been a radio reporter, producer for WAMU, which is the NPR station in Washington, D.C. And I had been working on a weekly news magazine and the station decided that they were going to transition that show off the air. So I and a couple of other people were sort of left without a specific job to do. So one of the bosses at the station said, hey, I have this idea. Do you think that you'd want to try hosting it? And I had 
mentioned to her previously that I wanted to try hosting. And it was an instructive moment for me to sort of say the thing you want to do out loud and say it to people who can do something about it because she remembered that I had said that and came to me and said, you want to try it? And I said, sure, why not? So I and another producer, we had some time to pilot this show. And the idea was that it was kind of going to be like almost like a podcast mixtape, but on the radio, it's very little narration. And what we ended up doing was something totally opposite of what we had intended because we played it for a lot of people. And the initial pilot that we made wasn't super well received. And we sort of tested it and tested it and tested it. And we had people inside the station listen to it, people outside the station listen to it. And we refined until we got something that people were into. And it ended up being very interview heavy, very narration heavy, very production heavy, which was not the original intent. But it ended up working out well. We piloted a local season here in Washington, D.C. I think we made about 12 episodes or 15 episodes as a pilot season. And then we ended up getting distributed by NPR nationally, which means that stations around the country can buy the show and air it on their own stations. And so we entered into a partnership with NPR to make a couple of seasons. So basically, we made the show from sort of late 2015 to 2018. Did we say yet what it what it was about? No, we didn't. So <laughs> we I'm going to. It. Don't okay. worry. Don't worry. Well, so the show was called The Big Listen. We called it a broadcast about podcasts. That might not have been the most precise way of explaining it, but we thought of the show as sort of like a New York Times book review mixed with Oprah's favorite things, mixed with a variety show of a sort. And it would be about the digital audio medium or podcasts. So we had people who made podcasts. We had celebrities on who were on shows or who really liked the medium. We treated it sort of just like any other medium, even though it's sort of newer and emerging. But we thought of it as there are shows about movies, there are shows about books, like why not shows about podcasts? So it was definitely an experiment. We tried it out. I think that we were perhaps a little ahead of our time in that while those of us who work in media are very familiar with podcasts, not everybody is super familiar with them. I mean, about a third of American adults listen to podcasts regularly and the number is growing and we've seen the industry change, but we experimented, we piloted that show and then it ended up getting canceled because of the economics of it. I mean, these things are expensive. Shows are expensive to make and you have to be able to pay for them. And a lot of shows in the early days of public radio did lose money, but they were able to take hits better than they are now. And, you know, Car Talk lost money for like five years before that was a very popular show. It continues to be popular, even though one of the hosts has died. But now it's a much more more sort of competitive industry. So let me ask you this, just for especially those young people listening who may want to get into this industry, can you take them behind the curtain for a moment and let them get a sense for how many hours of preparation, of editing, of production, of guest booking, of writing scripts, of all of that would go into each episode? (laughs) 
<laughs> dozens and dozens and dozens, like so many hours. I mean, I probably, when I worked on that show, worked 60 hour work weeks, but that's also because we didn't have a huge staff. It's a lot of work. You know, we were booking four guests a week, basically. And when you book a guest, they're not in your studio generally because they don't live in your city. So you have to book a studio. And if they're a fancy guest, a celebrity type person, you have to work with their publicist. And you have to make sure that they get there and you have to book the studio and you have to then, once you have the interview in hand, to cut the interview down because no one wants to listen to an unedited interview that goes on for a half an hour or however long we would sit with guests. And then it all has to be packaged up and we had multiple segments. So each segment had to be produced and there were many moving parts. So it's many hours of work. It was many hours of work on my part because I was a host and it just falls on hosts sometimes, especially if you have your own show, then you're doing all of it yourself, basically. Yeah, that's so true. And so I just want to ask about your experience in this industry. How has the podcasting industry evolved since you started getting interested in? I know it was pretty young when you started. And what do you think is that secret sauce that sets super successful podcasters like Tim Ferriss, Joe Rogan, the guys from Pod Save America, apart from the hundreds or maybe now thousands of other podcasters who have the same passion and put in the same amount of work, like you were saying, 60 hour work weeks, but haven't been able to break through? Excellent question. It has evolved hugely. I mean, five years ago, six years ago, when I started, there were not that many shows. Right now, there are about 400,000 active podcasts in the Apple podcast landscape, which is where most people listen to podcasts. That's ridiculous. Like, how do you even find a show? It's insane. So it's changed a lot. I think that before there were public media organizations that were making shows like NPR, and then there were independent producers who were making things and not much in between. And now, even in the last five years, we've seen every major media company from the New York Times, the Atlantic, Washington Post, BuzzFeed, all the digital spots, they all have shows now. And that means that there were like a ton of jobs. It went from, oh, you work in audio? Well, so you work for NPR. And now it's like the sky's the limit kind of. So it's amazing for young people who want to get into it. Everybody talks about we're in a podcast bubble and it's going to burst at some point. And that's fine. Like that's how media matures. But from a professional standpoint, it's a very competitive space right now. The other part of your question is how do you get seen? I wish that there was a special sauce because I would employ it myself. Like I would guzzle that special sauce so much. And there isn't, that's the problem is that there is many different formulas as there are people out there. And also we're in a stage now with podcasting where we've mashed it all together. Like when we talk about movies, we don't just talk about everything that is a moving image under the category of like movie. Like we have documentaries, we have feature films, we have comedies, we have dramas and they don't get judged against each other. And I think in podcasts, everything has been lumped together. So what makes a really great storytelling podcast or what makes a really good narrative podcast is really great reporting, great sound, like great tape, point of view, some tension and a really great topic. What makes a really great interview show? Engaging guests, great questions, a really smooth edit. But again, it's a crapshoot because some shows you think will do really well and they don't. And other shows are total sleeper hits and they're a total surprise to everybody. And I wish that I knew what that was. I think that as the industry matures, 
and there are categories within it that become a little bit more niche, then you'll start to be able to see, well, you know, this is what makes this category, this is what makes this category good. But now it's this weird, like, wild west. Yeah. I want to ask Lauren the flip side of Lindsay's question. And that is what in your experience are the biggest mistakes or even most common mistakes that many podcasters make? Mm -hmm. They may be new podcasters. They may be those who've been out there grinding for years and haven't broken through. Yeah. So there are two sides of it, right? There's the technical side of it and there's the content side of it. And I care about both of those. The technical side of it is that people don't pay attention to how it sounds and what it's like to listen to it. It's really fun to record, but what about how does it sound in the listener's ear? You can make a podcast as slapdash as you want, but putting in the effort to edit it, putting in the effort to mix it and sound design it and have a signature sound to it is really important. I think that a lot of people don't do that and they'll like record with their best friend in their basement with like their iPhone, which like I love that the medium is democratized in such a way that it is pretty accessible to people who have access to a computer and some type of recording device. That's amazing. But I think people don't consider the audience. And I think considering the audience is a really important thing. I also think having a point of view is really critical and knowing what that is, being really confident in your point of view. You know, I think of the true crime genre. It just feels like kind of prurient and we're just watching ambulances go by and we're not thinking about sort of the deeper meaning and like, what do you want to tell? Like, what is the story you want to tell? Or do you just want to tell something that's really graphic and shocking to people? Or do you want to delve into the sociopolitical aspects of it or the emotional aspects? Like, what do you want to say? And I think it's important that people ask themselves that because podcasting does feel really sexy for people. And it's like, I can make a thing and it's my voice, but like, does your voice even need to be on it? You know, do you even need to have a show? I think these are questions that people could ask themselves. And if the answers are yes, like by all means, make your thing. Be critical when you're asking yourself questions. Yeah. So right on that note, and what you said earlier that really interested me was talking about the big media companies who have podcasts, NPR, The Atlantic, how every media company kind of has a podcast now. For someone who is just getting out of college or is a student in college right now and is really interested in podcasts like myself and like those guys in the basement making the podcast with their iPhone. How do you start out? Can you or should you start out just creating your own content, making mistakes? Or is it better to go that route to try to get a job in radio reporting or as an assistant producer? What's the best path, you think? I think that it depends on what you want to do, right? If you want to be a reporter, then you need to be in an outlet that's reporting. So if that's a smaller market public radio station, if that's a smaller newspaper, wherever it is, you have to be in the place where they're doing that. It's hard to be like an independent reporter at a very young age. I think it's nice to be in an institution where there's structure and you can learn from other people. If your interests are something that is storytelling or narrative or experimental or something like that, then by all means, like make your own thing in your own house, make a product, build an audience, make a website, get people to listen to it. I mean, some of the most critically acclaimed shows started 
from people making their own thing and then getting picked up by collectives or networks or something like that. So I think it just depends on the area that you want to get into. But certainly if you want to do sort of hard news and journalism, most of these places have paid internships, certainly in radio. There are many of them. They're very competitive, but they exist. And because they pay, they're more accessible to most people. But I think being able to be in an institution and learning from other people is really important. Yeah. Amazing. Thank you. That's really helpful for me. And I think it's going to be helpful for a lot of listeners who are also interested. Now you mentioned in the espresso shots, which if you haven't heard yet, you should go take a listen because they're awesome. You mentioned an article that you wrote about grunt work and the value of grunt work. Can you tell us a little bit more about what it is and why it's important for those people in their basement making the podcast to be willing to do that work? Well, I mean, grunt work is all the trash work that nobody actually wants to do, right? It's not the like sexy getting to listen to your own voice, like getting to speak to people in their earbuds. It's doing the research, it's booking studios, it's dealing with the technology, it's all of that kind of stuff. And so for that particular article, that you referenced that I wrote for an organization called transom.org, which is a really great radio training entity. They've don't know it or you have an interest in audio, audio production, it's a really great reference. But I talked to a bunch of my female producer friends who have pretty high profile jobs now. And not only do they have a long history of doing that type of work, but they also still do it now, even though they run podcast operations for very large networks, or they are multi award winning journalists, but they're still putting the time in to figure out what guests are appropriate or do the research on the guests or sort of pound the pavement trying to pull stories out of particular communities. And I mean, that's just all part of the job. I think that listeners only get to hear the finished product and the finished product sounds great, but there's a massive amount of work that goes into making the finished product, which I mean, maybe people don't think it's grunt work. Maybe people think that it's the great part because actually not everybody wants to be on air. And I think that's an important thing. A lot of people want to produce, a lot of people want to make beautiful things, but they do not need to be front and center and they don't need their voice to be out there. And I think that's a really important thing to know about yourself. You're going to audio like, do I want to be a reporter? Do I want to be a producer? Do I want to be an editor? Do I want to be a sound designer? Do I want to host a show? Because there are lots of ways to get into this. You know, do I want to be a studio engineer? There's so many positions in that and all of those go into making a radio story or a podcast. I think that's one of the things that I always loved about journalism is that it really is a team sport. Yes, absolutely. And the camaraderie and the partnership that's Mm -hmm. involved in producing wonderful stories. I mean, that is almost as fulfilling as actually doing the reporting itself. Yeah. I mean, there are plenty of people who work in podcasting who can do everything soup to nuts, right? And who like doing that. They'll put everything together themselves and they know how to do it and they have the skills to do all of those. In big shops like in NPR or other public radio outfits, people really specialize. And that's really important too. I feel very confident that I can put a podcast together from start to finish. However, I know that there are areas within that that I excel at and areas where I definitely fall short. And I would rather work with people who have an expertise in sound design or engineering or something like that, that I am not great at. And it just makes the experience better. Yeah. And I think you made an excellent point, Lauren, which I hope young listeners will really take on board. And that is, yes, it is great if you decide you want to be on air, if you decide you want to be the host, you decide you want to be the engineer. 
but it really is a great idea to learn all the moving pieces and to do that grunt work because later in your profession, you're going to be more valuable because you may decide, hey, I was a producer. Now I want to be on air. But you know the whole piece. I want to move, Lauren, to the big lesson, Mm -hmm. your show on NPR, which unfortunately was canceled. And I want to talk about that piece because I think it's so important for young people to appreciate the fact that we have our ups and downs. We get curveballs Mm -hmm. thrown at us at various points in our career. And in my case, when I was 43, CNN decided, yeah, they weren't renewing my contract. And I decided I wasn't going to stay in the industry and I had to reinvent myself. I would love to hear from you, Lauren, how you have adjusted and pivoted at this point Mm -hmm. in your career. And I'm super excited that you have another show that's coming up. But can you talk about how you grappled with having your show being canceled Mm -hmm. and moved forward, like with your head held high and figured out how you were going to make it work? Yeah, yeah. I was an athlete for my high school years, my college years, and I played at a very competitive level. And in that you learn how to win with grace and lose in the same way, you know? And I think that it was an important training ground for me to know that like your life isn't going to end just because you lose at something. And I think work in a similar way that because I have a really solid foundation of just sort of skills, but also ability to be flexible and shift, I'm able to weather those types of changes. So I've lost jobs before. I mean, I got fired from a job, which actually led me into freelancing, which led me into working for my local NPR station, which led me to hosting a show. And it never would have happened, honestly, if I hadn't gotten fired, which is like a crazy thing to say. And so it feels like the end of the world at the time that it happens. Like when the show ended, I knew it was going to end because I understood the sort of economics of it and all of that. And it feels terrible, especially when you are at the helm of something because it feels very personal. It's your voice out there. It's your image. And then that goes away. And so you have to figure out, okay, like, who am I? What am I? Like, how do I exist in the world? It is a reminder that you are not your job. You are a person in the world who happens to have a job. And it's great if it's an important thing to you. And if you feel a sense of purpose and identity in it, great. But it is not the sort of sole measure of who you are as a person. And so when the show was canceled, I tried to think of it like that. I certainly had bad days and down days. I was really bummed about it. But I also knew that I could fall back on, and this sort of goes to the previous topic we were discussing is, you know, when you know how to do all the skills, you can fall back on those other things. So I did a little bit of production help for some folks and I coach hosts on how to be hosty. And then, you know, I consult with folks who want to start a show. And I knew that at some point I would get back on the microphone and I had a bunch of ideas of shows that I was interested in pursuing. And it just so happened that there were a couple of shows out there that were looking for hosts. And I audition for a few and I end up getting one of those. So that'll start soon. But you know, it was a good six months of trying to figure it out and throwing things against the wall and seeing what sticks. And I think that it's really good practice. It sucks when you're doing it, but it just further fills up your reserves of resilience and knowing that, okay, I'm probably not going to starve because I'm able to hustle. I mean, that's one thing I've always been able to do is hustle up work. It might not be sexy work. It might be work that I am over 
qualified for, but like a job's a job. So <laughs> when you have to like buy groceries, there's nothing that's beneath you. Right. When the money is still green. It's true. It's true. So like I mentioned, I'm a junior in college mm-hmm. and a lot of our listeners are around the same age or maybe even about to graduate college this spring. And now you talked a lot about having jobs since you were 15. What is the experience that people who are about to get out of college should have before they graduate? Is there a class, a job, an internship that you think would be really valuable to someone who is interested in this? No, I mean, I think of how many people I know who are in this particular industry and nobody had experience really coming out of college. I think they just had a curiosity for the medium and ended up, you know, maybe getting an internship after college or maybe getting a fellowship or maybe doing some type of specific audio training. There are a handful of programs out there. Certificate programs are not college programs and they're much cheaper. I don't know that there's something specific except like be willing to have your first job not be your best job. I hate sounding like an old person. You don't want your early jobs to be your best jobs because then what do you have to look forward to? I mean, if I got my dream job when I was 25, well, then what? I'm going to live for like 60 more years, at least like God willing, you know? (laughs) So then what? Like I would rather work up to something or have a number of jobs that felt really fulfilling. But when I was young, it's a different generation. It was a different time. Like I graduated from college in 2000. So it was a different economy. Technology hadn't come along in the same way. And I was just sort of bumbled along and figured I'll sort of go where it seems like it makes sense for me. And that worked at the time. I mean, it probably doesn't work now. It's helpful to have some sort of guiding light, but also, you know, know that like the career winds will change and that's totally, totally fine. But I think just thinking, I don't need to do all the things I want to do because I think millennials are like super ambitious. They want the thing now and we live in this like immediate gratification and that first job might not be a great job, but you'll probably learn a lot. I mean, my first three jobs were just like, and if I look at the work that I did back then, it's like embarrassing. Like I would never read an article that I wrote when I came out of grad school because it is so terrible. Lauren, the first story I did for a member station of National Public Radio in Columbia, South Carolina was how to get your car inspected. Right. Okay. (laughs) Right. No, I mean, I definitely did a story about a cat stuck in a tree. Like I 100% did that. But one, I mean, you can look back and laugh, you know, I wasn't like racking up national awards then. And if you are, you're a total wunderkind and you're like a freak. You're like a fashion model of journalism if you're like winning a Pulitzer when you're 23. So there is something to be said for savoring where you are and knowing that the kind of big prize is out there on the horizon. Right, right. Or you know what? Maybe there isn't a great prize. Maybe you just have a job for your whole life. And that's totally fine, right? I think disabusing ourselves of the idea that we're all going to change the world. Like we're probably not. We're probably just going to like deal with our little patch of the world. And that's great. And we'll impact some people. That's cool. And like our family and friends will love us. And that's amazing. But like, I think a lot of people perhaps misunderstand the great impact It almost sounds negative, but I think it's realistic and understanding that the world does not live or die based on the types of jobs that I have. And I'm not going to perish because I don't get the job of my dreams, whatever that is. Lauren, I want to ask you right now just to kind of shift gears a moment. As a proud member of the LGBTQ community, how would you say the environment 
for other LGBTQ individuals in journalism stacks up? And in particular, do you have any advice for Gen Z LGBTQ aspiring journalists who are worried about potential barriers that they may face or have to overcome in this profession? Mm -hmm. So I can only speak from my own experience and the newsrooms that I have worked in, because as you travel across the U.S., the environments and newsrooms in other places that are perhaps not as welcoming as the coastal places that I have lived, it might be different. So from, you know, my experience, I've always been out in all of my jobs. Everybody has known that I'm gay and I've been a member of the National Lesbian and Gay Journalists Association, which really provided a great support network of incredible journalists around the country who were part of the LGBTQ community. And I learned a lot from them just sort of how to comport yourself as a queer person in a professional environment. And I think that other sort of marginalized people get this where you have to be the person who answers all the questions about that particular topic or, you know, the default is straight, white, male, able. And frankly, I think that probably young LGBTQ people today probably do a much better job because they're in an environment where they're sort of differently vocal than perhaps previous generations. I mean, we're also living in a sort of post-gay marriage world and there's been much progress in terms of rights. And so I think that people in the queer community now are just in a little bit of a different position. I think that it's important to be out in any workplace as long as it's safe. I've never had any problems. I've had stupid comments. People said dumb things because they were ignorant. And sometimes you can use it as a teachable moment. Other times you just like slough it off and like, I don't need to be fussing with you right now. The one thing where it does come into play in journalism that is challenging, and I think again, like people of color, women, people with disabilities, where it can become challenging is when you are reporting on things that impact your community and you have to be objective. And how do you maintain that objectivity? I mean, we think of the particular administration now and all the different groups that I mentioned have been targeted. And so if you are a Latinx person who is like also interested in immigration, how do you cover the community that you're a part of, but also do it in a way that's fair? And there's been a lot of conversation within different groups about how you do that. And should you even be, you know, hyper objective? And can you inject some of your own experience into things? You know, it's an interesting time to be in journalism and also be able to be part of a group that is also in the news. Yeah. Well, thank Thank you. Yeah. So let's flash back to when you were in college. Oh, God, I can barely remember. (laughs) At American University, not far from here. You got your BA in Justice and Public Affairs. I did. Did you know what you were going to do with that degree? You know, my dad's a lawyer, so I thought I was going to be a lawyer, but I took the LSATs and I pretty quickly realized I wasn't going to be a lawyer after that. (laughs) I did very badly on the LSAT. I really didn't know what I was going to do. Frankly, I had no clue. I mean, I knew the subject areas I was interested in, but I feel like kids now are much more career driven than I was. I had no idea. And the same with me, Lauren. I tell you, I think even though I'm quite a bit older than you are, I think maybe it's just our generations were not yeah. quite as professionally focused as the young folks these days. <laughs> well, college wasn't set up to be that. Yeah. You know, college was a place where you would learn and it was especially liberal arts colleges. They were not professional degree programs. And so you get your degree in art history or sociology or physics or something like that. And it was like, 
you were learning things and then you would go and figure out the job. And now it's like you have to be very job focused when you go into college. Is this degree going to lead me to a job? And I understand it because the economics of it are really hard and you have to pay your student loans and all that stuff. So your focus has to be on the end result. Absolutely. Lauren, one of the questions I try to ask all time for coffee guests is to share a story with the Java Junkie community about a time in your professional life when you struggled. And I don't know if we've already covered it with the big lesson or if there's been another experience, because more important than the fact that you worked with sucky colleagues or had an asshole for a boss or were fired is the resilience point that you made earlier. How did you persevere? What lessons did you learn? as a result. Mm -hmm. I worked in a newspaper in Vermont some years ago and I had an experience there that basically made me get out of newspapers. I had a situation where I wrote something and some people didn't like it. And I had editors who had edited it and said it was fine. And then when push came to shove said, no, we don't stand by this. And when you have people who you're working with who don't stick up for you, it wasn't great. So I left and I was kind of sort of wandering in the wilderness. What do I do? And I had always been interested in audio. And so I ended up on a whim going to this audio training program and realizing, yes, this is my milieu. Like this is the place that I want to be. I really had to shift perspective because I thought, well, I'm going to be a print reporter forever and never, ever entertain the idea of going into audio. But once I did, it was like all of these doors opened and I've been far more successful successful in this than I ever would have anticipated. And so I think just, you know, in the experiences that feel really bad or that are really challenging, what is a side door that you can take out of it that you can sort of exit that way and follow in a different direction? And that's okay. Like you'll have like a million career paths in the course of a very long work life because we live much longer now. So (laughs) and like nobody can afford to retire. So you're going to have to reinvent yourself a couple of times. So were you still working for the paper in Vermont when you went to that radio conference or had you been let go? No, no, I left. I left there. I quit that job and I spent some time trying to figure out what I was going to do. And then I ended up going to this two month long radio training program called the Transom Story Workshop, where I learned everything that I still use now. Every single time I make any audio thing, I use my training there. So yeah, I went there and then got into freelancing and that's it. And the rest is history. Thank you so much for sharing that. Yeah, I think that's a great example of one door closes, another door opens. It's just like such a real life thing. Okay, Lauren, final time for coffee question. All right. If you could go back to American University and do it all over again, based on the wisdom you have now, what would you do differently? And what advice would you give yourself? Ooh, you know, I would probably make more use of the resources at the university. I would probably have more conversations with folks who knew what they were doing to sort of help me figure out a path. However, then I probably wouldn't be on the path that I'm on now because my path has sort of been a little bit meandering. But I do think that I was in college in Washington, D.C. and I didn't do one internship. I had a job, but also like a lot of internships didn't pay then. And so I had to work. And so I had real people jobs here. And I wish that I probably would have taken a little bit more advantage of the types of career services they have at universities or getting to know my professors a little bit better. So maybe I could have worked for them. That is such great advice. Lauren, 
Thank you so much for making time for coffee this afternoon with myself and Lindsay and the Java Junkie community. We thoroughly, I think I can speak for you, Lindsay. Absolutely. (laughs) Thoroughly enjoyed talking with you, getting to hear more about your career. And we're super excited for you and this new chapter. Does the show have a name that you could tell us? It has a name, but I can't tell you what it is yet because it hasn't been announced. All but right. it airs in May from American Public Media, so you can catch it then. Awesome. Well, I can't wait to get to listen to you back on NPR and get to enjoy as I'm driving to get my son at the bus stop or long road trips, getting to listen to you and your beautiful voice. Thank you. That's kind of you. I hope you can find us in the sea of podcasts that are out there. So don't worry. We'll find you. (laughs) (laughs) Awesome. Thanks, guys. Thanks so much for listening to Time for Coffee, where the professionals in the jobs that most interest you always have time to grab coffee 24-7, no matter where you live. I have one quick favor to ask you. Remember to rate, review, and subscribe to Time for Coffee. Thanks so much.